Okay, welcome to the first episode of Outliers in Software and Technology. I'm your host, Zach Cook. Like on the Outliers in Sales and Marketing show, I'm going to be interviewing people that I think are truly outliers <laughs> in, uh, in, in many different uh, areas of software and technology. Um, we're going to start with the stuff that I feel like I know best and I know the most about, which is just running web applications uh, online and you know, unique, new, innovative ways to do that. I have probably the best possible guest I could have on today to talk about the main topics, which one is Docker, which I think is totally changing the world. You, you know something's really important when they're having a, an interview with the CEO of VMware, and he keeps getting peppered with questions about a specific topic. <laughs> you know, like, what about Docker? What's Docker doing to your business model, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> VMware is a multi-billion dollar company. So when a little thing that our, that our close friend Guillaume uh, just makes, you know, and it, and it blows up like that, him and the other guys at DotCloud, um, and it starts changing the entire world and CEOs of multi-billion dollar companies are getting asked about it. That's when you know it's an important technology. And I know you're an expert on it, for example, because, uh, you know, you just gave a college lecture uh, on the topic and uh, really riveted the class to the point where like 75% of the class stayed late to learn more about Docker. About an hour late, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is ridiculous, man. So uh, I think you know what you're talking about. You know how to talk about it in an interesting way. And the second thing is spot ins. In Amazon EC2 instances in, in general, um, I, maybe I got that wrong, AWS instances. I don't know. You're the expert, so we're going to get into it. But um, how they help people save money and how Spotints to just raise $15 million in a Series A might be uh, unnecessary after you finish this open source project that you're working on, or uh, at least a vast percentage of their business will be over. So those are the things we're going to talk about. Um, Jam is a close friend of mine. He's a, a brilliant, self-taught computer scientist. He's much too humble uh, to say that about himself, but I think it's absolutely true. So that's it. Welcome to the show, Jim. Thank you. And let me interject real fast. You, <laughs> you said that I was uh, one of the most, I don't know, expert people you know about Docker, but we actually both happen to know a guy who <laughs> contributed a majority of the code to Docker uh, during the first year of its creation. So... I don't really know Docker that well on a uh, code level, per se. I understand like a high level of how it all fits together, where it's really practical for people to use and have definitely successfully used it in several companies and several platforms scaling to, to be able to scale their platform properly so they can handle large amounts of traffic. So, Okay, well, point taken. He definitely knows a lot more about Docker than we do, especially how it's built. But I think today's episode, you're just as good as, as he is at, or better because it's all about the practical implications it has for businesses. And I think that um, or practical implications it has for really software companies um, or any company that has a software company element to it. So I think that fits perfectly. <clears throat> um, actually, let, let me go back to that thing you're talking about VMware. So okay. there's an actual really interesting historical difference between Docker and VMware um, that uh, is, is really interesting. 
kind of going all the way back to the beginning of computer science because okay. if you think about it, um, computer science has been around for less than 100 years. So everybody who is doing contributing to computer science is a pioneer in computer science. Like, <laughs> Hell yeah. I didn't know I was a pioneer until just now. <laughs> compared to the how long computer science will be in existence, we're all definitely pioneers in this. Wow, that's subject. a great point. I've never thought of it that um, way. So you kind of view it as like, we're actually at the very beginning of software. Very beginning, like so beginning that I think not. I'm not. I'm just talking about Docker. I'm talking about computer science in general. I think you go 500 years down the road, and like this whole century is just going to be squished into like almost like like one or two like major achievements in computer science. Like, oh, that's when they they got it up and running. That's when they like finally like. That's like working. when they that's like when they invented the wheel. You know. <laughs> Like, I'm sure they invented now all kinds of cool shit. and Teslas. I'm sure there's tons of cool shit they invented when they invented the wheel. But all we think about it they is... They didn't have podcasts back on, though. Then. <laughs> they couldn't have some guy come on and be like, so why is the wheel so important? Everyone keeps talking about the wheel, and the CEO of this horse company was getting hammered about the fucking wheel stuff. Like, what's the big deal with these wheels? My horse is way faster. Like... <laughs> Wheels suck. I don't even know what they're useful for. You can get inside of them and like roll down a hill. But uh, <laughs> and by the way, we can get back to your point about VMware and all that other stuff in a second. But you're about to make a distinction about what's different between VMware and Docker. That's really interesting. Just hold that thought because that's a good perspective. Like I wonder, like the first hundred years of um, was that recent too though? What what was like the first hundred years of capitalism? Oh, man, I'm definitely not an expert on that. Um, cap <clears throat> when was the first actual historical example of capitalism? I don't know. I mean, I think it kind of just organically evolved, just like others, other things do. But I wonder what's the first 100 years of, of anything. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if your points, if I agree with you or not, but it's definitely interesting to talk about for a second. Like, are we just at the very beginning because it's less than 100 years old? Or, I mean, because... Humanity in general hasn't been around for very long, right? Like at least fire and the wheel and those sorts of things compared to how long the planet's been here. Am I making any sort of good point? Am I onto something like it's it's all about because capitalism's probably only been around like a few hundred years. It, it's it's all about I guess all about what you're what you're considering a long time. I guess so maybe maybe but, maybe free market capitalism started in. Uh, in but like I'm comparing this more to science. So like okay. we're not really comparing this to other things. I'm comparing it to sciences. So we have all these different sciences, right? We have like, oh, physics. That's a way better comparison. You have mathematics, right? Mathematics, like the subject of mathematics. That's more apples and apples. So yeah, like a, that's what like... more what I'm going for. Like pioneers in the area of like mathematics, like like how long have we been like discovering new things in that area of mathematics? So I, mean, I, I had a really bad example. Recently, really recently, like I mean, you can go back like Einstein and like great like mathematical discoveries that have happened super recently but that whole subject matters existed for thousands and thousands of years and you have the same example with physics and and language and kind of i'm comparing it to like this actual like subject matter of it like the actual subject and science of computer science is very new well and i think whether it's true or not that's a really emboldening way to think about it because if you think about something as oh this is just some brand new thing you know, comparatively to like how long other sciences have been around, 
like maybe I could jump in and make a huge improvement because it has only been around for, for such a, a short amount of time. And like, how long has like the cloud and, and Linux and Unix based servers been around that aren't like self-hosted and stuff like you, you take it out of something like that and you really do realize that it's like, man, it's brand new. I mean, it's just been around for a couple of days. And yeah. Seen things. And you have computer scientists that have created amazing things and done these amazing pioneering things recently and so recently that it's like I'm convinced at least on this point I'm convinced that there's plenty of more room for computer scientists to make amazing breakthroughs it's not that we've like hit I, I feel like it's really easy to look back to look back at all the accomplishments that have happened and then to like feel like you're at the ceiling and like like oh like there's no more like huge breakthroughs to come and then obviously somebody some random person doesn't think that way and and everybody Fucking thinks he's stupid. Person. And then he like does come up with this like, amazing breakthrough. Um, and everybody's like, wow. And then they think that they're at the ceiling again. And there's like some other like random person who everybody thinks is stupid, wasting his time on this theory that he's working on or who knows what, you know, and he has a breakthrough. I don't know. This is, this definitely could, is definitely a subject that particular, what I'm saying is can definitely be debated for sure. <laughs> so do you think Docker has moved the ceiling up a notch, how far is the ceiling moved up? Um, so I don't view it as a ceiling. See, that's the point that I'm making. <laughs> oh, shit, okay. I'm one of the, maybe one of the- Getting lost in this is a large extended analogy, but okay. So <laughs> so let's just jump back to your other point. So um, that was a interesting tangent though, for sure. So you were about to say something about an important difference between VMware and Docker or, or something yes. along those lines back to the beginning of computer science. Yes, and and yeah, the difference goes all the way back to the very beginning, uh, close to the beginning of computer science, and it's all around this issue area of scalability, because that's what Docker um, is solving, it's scale, scalability. Okay. So you have, way back in the late 50s, uh, you had mainframes, and um, as problems became more complicated that people were trying to solve, um, the, they would need to scale their mainframe. And so the, and what's a mainframe, just like a huge computer, right? Mainframe's just a really computer. big computer. And the difference the one interesting thing about a mainframe is they they weren't networked. Mainframes were not networked for the most part. They weren't networked. Okay. Um, and so when it came to scaling your mainframe, you just had to make it bigger, make a bigger mainframe. And so in order to solve that problem of scale, of scalability, um, that was when networked computers came out and that's what solved, that's what solved the, that problem. Wait, but was it not the chips though? Because now, nowadays, um, you know, I carry around a supercomputer in my pocket and that's not because it's networked with other computers and like all the servers are like sharing the load or something like that. So what is but it? You're actually wrong it? about that because this, <laughs> oh, this computer right here is backed by the cloud. It's backed by tons and tons and tons of computing power. In fact, um, I'm not sure what the exact numbers are. This would actually be really interesting to look up. Um, if we were to take all computers in the cloud, or I shouldn't even say cloud because that's a confusing term to people. They think just Dropbox. But if you were to take all computers that are in these data centers and, and, and take the amount of computing power that happens on those and then take... Um, Maybe even take ones that are specifically related to um, API services and apps and stuff like that. Okay. And then take all the computing power of all smartphones 
and then see how they stack against right. each other. Right, it'd be like it'd be like a tiny, tiny percentage versus a huge thing. Exactly. But the first big mover, as far as making those computers able to process more, was chips. Yeah. So mainframes, when mainframes were in existence, they did come out with more and more powerful and more powerful chips. And so the pro, and so that was cool. Like bigger chips did help with with making with scaling. That's the but whole like had, exponential improvement stuff. Yeah, you exactly. The more law. of like yeah. And so these. Uh, Moore's law was still being applied to mainframes as themselves, but you you have to throw away your whole mainframe, rebuild a whole new one. You have to, or you know, you have to like if if you have your your mainframe with the older technology, you either have to throw it away, get a new, new one with bigger technology, or you could use the older one with the newer one and share the resources. That's the networks. That's what that's what the networking is solving. Okay. Um. And <clears throat> anyways, networking just definitely was the route to go. You don't see mainframes anymore because of that. So in the, like the late, um, all right, I might be getting my dates off, but I think like the late, maybe it was the late eighties when network, I'm not sure exactly when, okay. okay, This sounds really bad. I'm not exactly sure when network. No, the late eighties. I think you're fine. People in YouTube comments and SoundCloud comments will tell us the exact. Yeah, exactly. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) The late eighties. Yeah. (laughs) Um, so maybe I won't give a date, but you have network computers that came out, and then then organizations um, began to take these network computers and started putting them on racks, and um, coming up with these like nice like physical like. There was a company called Rackspace. Uh, it's actually yeah, their name in Austin. From that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and then what happened is these companies outside of organizations like Rackspace formed around this whole idea of just providing networked computers to people. And that was, um, that that would have been like late 90s, around when that would have started happening, when you started having these big data centers um, being created. So let me recap. So the chips came along, that helped, that was really important and kind of making- That's kind of consistent along the whole computer's history. Right, and it kind of helped these personal computers be able to throw it in your in your backpack and lug it around. But still you've got these massive computing problems that uh, you know couldn't just be solved with that. And actually a much bigger factor in increasing you know, how much computing power we had was the ability to network and send it to a bunch of different computers. Definitely. To solve the problem. Definitely. Um, and so that that's the that's a recap of that. So that's how that's that that's the main emphasis on uh, increasing how much computing power we can we can do nowadays. Yes. Okay. So now you have now you have data centers, right? Now we're at data centers in in, in the timeline, and as they started having these um, like thousands and thousands of computers in a single room or a single data center, they started noticing inefficiencies because they had that much computing power that they're comparing against, and they noticed that large numbers of their computers were running at minimal. Uh, running minim, minimal resources, and that's what VMware was created to solve. Uh, VMware, basically high level of what VMware is, essentially lets you run an operating system on top of another operating system. And so, by being able to, to do that, you could take all these mi- computers that are just running like minimal resources, and you could have them all virtualized. And now you can just throw them all onto one computer and turn off a huge section of your data center. Um, okay. 
Cool. So that's a huge efficiency gain. Efficiency gain, yeah. Right there. I totally got that. Um, and virtualization, of course, does other things, but you're saying that was a core, core thing. That's a core thing of why virtualization was created. And that's kind of like more like you actually took more of the business approach. Like if I, if I thought you were going to take a more technical approach on anything, I'd take the business approach. That was a business approach. So they were like, whoa, we're losing money because we these these servers aren't efficient. You know what I mean? So yeah. that's why they were virtualizing them. In that way, because when I was looking at it, I was learning about Docker recently, you know, and they were all saying, here's here's Docker. It's like a lighter, smaller version. We'll get way into that of uh, so you don't have to do virtualization anymore and you can sandbox stuff off without having a whole VM, which is has more overhead. That's what they were explaining that virtualization does. But you're talking about another thing, which is as important or more important. Which is just that, like they were trying to use their uh, their servers more efficiently, you yeah. Because they had all these they had all these these uh, servers that were being used at like you know whatever eight, ten, fifteen percent. So if it was used at ten percent, they could put ten ten on on there and you know ten times their money or something. Yeah. So did and I like, get that right, basically. Yeah, you did. Like the way I use VMware or um, virtualized operating systems, I use I think VirtualBox. But the way the, my use case for it is uh, I have a work computer that's required to be Windows and I want to run Linux on it. That's right. not the reason they created it. They didn't create virtualized operating systems to solve my little teeny tiny insignificant problem. No, but they, did, they did solve some other problems besides just the there's one that you're that, talking about. That's one that was solved out yeah. though. Yeah. Because there, there's the other problem where it's like, um, you know, like we're about to get there's like a way more efficient way to do it with containers. But you can kind of have things sandboxed off from the. So other sandboxing too. is yeah, sand the yeah. So we'll, we'll definitely get get into that later on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, shit, I'm gonna get torn apart. Is that something wrong? Okay, I'm scared, man. <laughs> no, you didn't get torn apart at all. I was just thinking about, do I really want to go down this because we're gonna be on it for a while? No, we should go on finish finish the history. Lesson. The history of computer science. Finish. Okay. We're here the history here of Docker. This is just the history of Docker. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so. Right, because we didn't talk about how the computer was first invented when they were trying to like crack. Have you seen that movie? You I've know? seen I've seen one that was really good. It's like super old. It's like from the eighties, but it's super relevant. No, there's a newer one where he's like trying to crack the code in the military, and that's how he creates computers. Oh. Oh yeah, the Alan Turing movie. Yeah, the Turing movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. So we're not doing the full history because that would have definitely been included. That would have definitely been a story, but we're doing the history of Docker. Go ahead. Okay, so it's it's uh, all right. We got VMs on these in these huge data centers. Like everything's going great. Awesome. But how do VMs work? This is this is compared to how Docker works. This is basically the reason Docker is so great. I guess I'm gonna kind of spoil it. Is because it's more efficient than VMware. Um, so, Massively, it looks like to me from what I've learned recently. Yes. So um, let me just give a really basic explanation of how VMware works. And I'm going to do it from a Linux perspective um, because it's just the easiest way to explain it. Um, not all operating systems are built like Linux or Unix, but this is just definitely the best way to do it. So um, you have hardware because they suck. <laughs> I wasn't gonna go that far. <laughs> you have you have hardware. Hardware is what runs everything, mm-hmm. all your circuits and stuff. And on top of that hardware, you have 
your operating system that communicates with that hardware. Right. But in order to simplify things and to make it so software developers don't have to um, directly manipulate the hardware because that would just make our jobs terrible and awful. And there'd only be maybe like, you know, a tiny fraction of computer scientists that we actually have yeah. today. Um, the, uh, the Linux operating system has, and most operating systems have a kernel. And the kernel is the part that talks to the hardware. It's all your drivers and stuff. Right. And um, it also handles memory allocation and some a few other things. But that's like, think of the kernel as the part of, that talks to the hardware and that your software then talks to. So your so, your op, the rest of your operating system is going to talk to this kernel, and then your kernel is going to talk to the hardware. So the way VMware works is it virtualizes your hardware. So what this looks like is if you have a program that's running on a v, VMware, running on an operating system that's on VMware, that program, when it starts processing things, that program is going to go send things off to that to its kernel. And that kernel is going to go start talking to the hardware, but it's virtual hardware. And then that virtual hardware, which is software on this parent machine, is going to go talk to the parent's kernel. And that the real kernel <laughs> is going, well, they're both real kernels. And oh, they could okay. actually both be identical kernels, same operating system. Okay. But um, that your actual parent kernel kernel. then talks to the real hardware. So let me just go over that real, real quick one more time, and I'll show you the, the part that's not that that's you definitely the drawing. Stage. By the way, the drawing is so helpful for this. Yeah. All right. So you have your your program talks to its kernel, or I should say operating system. Your operating system talks to the kernel. The kernel then talks to virtual hardware. That's the part that's that's virtualized. Okay. That virtual hardware is actually a program in and of itself. And so that virtual hardware talks to the parent machine's kernel. And that parent machine's kernel then talks to the real hardware. Okay, so the question is, is there a way to make that process more efficient? The kernel that's on your operating system, you could be running both the exact same version of Linux inside of the, the virtual, contain, virtual box and inside of your regular operating system. So they could actually even be identical kernels. Right. Um, so you're, so uh, any ideas for making it more efficient? Your kernels are exactly identical. Your hardware's not identical, but your kernels are exactly identical. By the way, I've always wanted to do this. Insert diagram here. It's yep. going to go in on the video. <laughs> yeah. I'll show exactly Definitely. what you're talking about. <laughs> okay. So you can keep going. So they'll, they'll see a picture of that for a few seconds. <laughs> long bullshitting about the picture being there so okay so I'll just just keep going so oh ha, any ideas oh any sure. ideas of optimizations optimizations I ideas I have one actually so um oh god it's really gonna test my my knowledge so they could use the same kernel is basically the big difference right and the same and throw and the what? Same if you're gonna use the same kernel what can you throw away completely say that again what can you throw away completely if you use the same kernel? Uh, that second layer of fake hardware. No virtualized hardware. Yes. You don't have to virtualize any hardware. Exactly. So no virtualization of the hardware, which is, it's got to be a, the most uh, kind of laborious part of it, you know? Yeah. And what the, yeah, exactly. And that that's, yeah. And, and laborious as far as like probably like development wise, yeah. but like also of like the computer, like actually working, like I'm not exactly sure what the specific specs on that are. But it definitely makes things a lot faster. And so an uh, analogy for this is a box with a bunch of boxes. That's kind of like 
if you picture each box as its own operating system, your, your virtual box would be like a box with all these little boxes inside of it. Whereas Docker is more like a box with just a bunch of things that are divided and, and there's, they're all individual operating systems with everything sharing the same kernel. So what is the part that, uh, in a Docker container that you are still, uh, replicating or or whatever so it's not the hardware in the in the kernel you're subdividing you're subdividing um access permissions okay and and um so the actual okay so this is why docker only works with linux or at least it's the original docker i think microsoft might have been this windows thing, thing but yeah. don't worry about it for now yeah yeah but um the reason it, it only works is uh basically let's 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 take two common linux operating systems let's take um, Ubuntu and let's take Debian. Uh, they're basically the same. Ubuntu and Debian are too close to actually do an accurate comparison. Um, Ubuntu is based on Debian. Got it. There's a quiz right so now. Red, Red Hat's good. Red Hat's good. Red Hat and Debian. <laughs> okay. Or Red Hat and Ubuntu. Okay. Um, okay. Very different. They have their own separate package management systems. Um, oh, right. Lots of difference. Right. They're right? a lot more different. Yeah. Okay. But they all use the same Linux kernel. Now, granted, the Red Hat team, like, well, since this code's open source, they'll make some tweaks to it, and, and Ubuntu will make some tweaks to their kernel and stuff like that. But f for the most part, like, they're all using the same kernel. So you can you can take the um, Ubuntu operating system and make it communicate with the same kernel that uh, Red Hat's going to be communicating with. Yeah. It's this Linux kernel built by Linus Torvalds. I don't know. If so if the actual right, com but. computer... Um, is like, I don't know, has an Ubuntu operating system, then in the containers, can you have different types of Linux running? You can. Yes. So that's, since, since the Linux kernel is pretty much consistent, pretty much consistent, but for our, 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 our case studies is consistent. Um, yes, you can have each Docker container can literally be its own Linux operating system. You can have a Ubuntu Docker container. You can have a... Uh, CentOS, you can have a Red Hat, you can have a Fedora, you can have a Slackware, you can have what whatever. Um, you can have Alpine. It's actually probably the up and coming, more popular. Yeah, that's what I've heard. Uh, uh, Linux operating system to use on Docker containers too. It's super minimalistic. Um, but they're all talking to the same kernel. And I'd love to give a demonstration on this one time at at, at some point because um, I can actually like prove it to you on the command line. I can show you all the processes running on your computer, spin up a process in the Docker container, then show it to you on the main computer running on the main computer's process list. Yeah. Spin up a process in a virtual box that doesn't show up on the main computer's process list. Uh, alas, this is a podcast. So bad format for uh, live demos. That's more of a keynote speaker yeah. at a tech conference thing. But uh, maybe we can make a bonus video and we can figure out how to make it happen after this one. Yeah. Potential, potentially. Um, so... What's the big deal with Docker? By the way, before I even get into that, I just want to point out something. So when I was researching Docker and learning more about it, by the way, did you know I didn't even know what the fuck Docker was when we were running group threads? Now, now I know I didn't I think, know. You wait, know was I, mean? I like, the one who introduced it to you, or is that a, am I? No, Nick. No, Nick. No, Nick. No, told me. No, when I came in, it was using Docker. It just wasn't yeah. using orchestration. Platform. Nick said, we're going to use this thing called Docker. It's going to help. And I said, okay, fuck yeah. I just let Nick do whatever, you know? <laughs> so, um, you know, because he was like, I was like, you set up the DevOps. Like, I'm an idiot. You know, I didn't even know how to do anything yet. So, um, but I didn't know that I truly didn't know until the past week and I was doing research for a podcast 
And I was like, oh, I know what Docker basically is now. Anyways, while I was doing that, I just want to point out something really important. This is a debate not between me and you, but, but, but between the way that you described it and the way that other experts have described it, at least the ones that were writing the, this is what Docker is in 12 minutes mm -hmm. videos. They were saying Docker is a tool for running applications in an isolated environment. So they were saying this is a tool for like application development. Like, you know, you can, uh, and they gave all the benefits. Like if you're using someone else, if you just join a brand new team, or if you just join a software company and you got to, you know, run their software product locally on your computer and develop on it, you can get started right away because it's portable because it's Docker, because it's, it's containerized and you pick up more information. Um, that's exactly the same as their production environment than like the source code. And then you have to build it yourself. So they were saying that's what Docker is. That's the big innovation. But then you were saying Docker is a solution for scaling. Is there a conflict there or are both things? I know both things have to be true on some level. So, um, they're both definitely correct because here's the, here's the fascinating thing about Docker. So I asked my friend one time who was a core contributor to Docker creation. I asked him, what did you, what was your intention? What problem were you trying to solve when you created Docker? Um, because there are so many different problems that Docker solves and different ways of saying, oh, Docker is this, no, Docker is this. And there's so many different things that Docker is. In fact, I um, actually, I'll probably be putting a video up on YouTube at some point of uh, the seven, uh, seven conventional and unconventional use cases for Docker. Okay. <laughs> it's actually this lecture that I, that I did at a university. Um, anyway, so I, that's just an example. That's just like, there's so many different things you can do with Docker. Um, the, uh, okay. So he told me that they created that he, he created Docker, um, to, uh, create a solution for reproducible builds or re creating this way of right. making things like re consistently reproducible, um, where you can oh, run it anywhere. You, where you can like run it anywhere and it works consistently. That's a much more, uh, shit, I lost the word I was going to use. That's a much better way to phrase it, a much more accurate way. Because say it one more time and then I'll bring my point home. Reproducible builds. It's a tool to create reproducible builds. Boom. That explains why it's good at both of these things. If you can create reproducible builds, it helps for, uh, you know, everyone running this, everyone being able to build on the same application and have it work the same in production and um, in your local environment. So it's a tool for application development and it explains why well, it helps you scale so much because yeah. you've got a reproducible build, then it's easier to scale, right? Because if you know it's going to be reproducible, you can scale it on like a whole bunch of instances really quickly and so, know it's going to be okay. Yeah. So actually the, the fact that Docker communicates with the, directly with the kernel, that's only a small facet of what makes Docker Docker? That's like what makes Docker different from a what what makes Docker more efficient than why oh, yeah, is Docker way more yeah, yeah why is Docker more efficient than VMware? That's why okay mainly well, because of disk with the, and the images and stuff. Well, that, that that doesn't have to do with runtime. That would do with that would do with building. But like what makes Docker yeah, like yeah. runtime faster than VirtualBox? That's all but that, more efficient like an operational but, sense. But what you're saying about diffs though. There's so much more than just the fact that it communicates with 
the parent kernel that makes Docker. Docker. Okay, Docker so has um, a um, templated way of like creating these consistent builds with these Docker files. You don't have that with um, VirtualBox. And yeah, it has this caching and diffing of like the different layers, which which make um, this probably just sounds like gibberish unless you actually know what Docker is. But it it will make the transferring of Docker containers to different computers and rebuilding Docker containers like way way faster. You can I don't think it sounds things. like gibberish because it's like it's like this is a very simple example of you know if you're a programmer or know how to code or something. It, the difference is without Docker, it's like every time you want to pull the newest version of the software, you grab all the code. You know, every single time you you grab all of it. <laughs> yeah. And then with Docker, this is how I think about it. I think it's a very simple way to think about it. With Docker, it's just like how Git actually works. You know, you just pull the newest stuff. Just the changes. Just the changes, yeah. And so it's like way faster, it's obviously. Like, yeah, Git, Git's a good example of... Uh, there are some actual interesting comparisons with Git and Docker, as in Docker. Um, and someone's going to like put something terrible in the comments about this comparison. But um, for the sake of some people who know if what anyone Git watches is, the videos, this, by the way, this could be <laughs> a good analogy in some aspects. The it, about like pulling the the, the newest, the, just the changes. Right. And also, you have Docker Hub, which is like a centralized like place to put your Docker right. team. So that's like yeah. So, anyways, there's so many different things that make Docker like Docker. <laughs> okay. What about this for the for the benefits? I'm gonna read you off a list of benefits that were uh, told by like the awesome people that make these really nice YouTube videos. Really, just explain what stuff is at a simple level. Um, and they got little, you know, you know, they're always drawing, you know, the cool videos where they're like drawing what it is too. So here are the main benefits they pointed out. Uh, they're all true. So the app always works, but you see if they missed a big one. Okay. The app always works, um, in the kind of same environment. So it should, uh, run the same way in production as it does on your personal computer, as it does, um, in a staging environment. Uh, you have better creativity for all the little weird places it could run, but it should run the same everywhere. So this is kind of corny now that I know that people say this a lot, but it's kind of like Java's slogan. Back in the day when it was like, write once, run anywhere. Yeah. You know what I mean, that's that's kind of what what Docker does. So you, so you write it once and it should work the same everywhere else. Um, it sandboxes your projects. You know, that's kind of a, for a thing for development. So like, you know, uh, you can have a kind of walled off garden in which you're developing that's separate from everything else. And you can be making like a PHP app over here and a Python one over here, and they're all walled off. That and that comes really useful when you have like a whole DevOps team and a software team. It's like there's now there's nice partition between and like the DevOps people don't have to know anything about the code, anything about how it's running. Like the software people do that and they just hand the containers off to the DevOps team. All oh, the yeah, DevOps right. team has to do is just make sure that these containers can run and can like scale and things like That's that. That's awesome. I heard a lot about that. Yeah, like big companies. People were stressing that as a huge advantage on other podcasts and stuff I was listening to on the subject. Um, they were saying, oh, it's so great because it creates that, you know, that partition between like the people that are writing the software and the people that are working on the DevOps. Um, it makes it super, this is kind of it being portable. It makes it super easy to get going on someone else's project. So they like hand it to you, boom, you know, it's, 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 it's going to run because you've got more, um, 
more consistency with with their 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 local development environment. You know, it's kind and of the same. Somebody hands you somebody hands you a project that needs to run uh, database, needs to run Redis, needs to run all these things. Oh, you don't have to configure any configuration on the computer. You just run a Redis container, run a Mongo container, run these little containers, just spin them up, spin them up. You know, you and then just run their application. Yeah. So that's super kick-ass. And uh, well, there's a bunch of other things, but one being the images build super fast. <laughs> like it's amazing when you're working with it. Uh, that's the part that Nick initially impressed me on, which is like, boom, did you see that? We just ran another Docker container. And I was like, what the fuck? Like you ran a whole new uh, you know, instance of something and it's like milliseconds. I mean, it just seems It's causes so. that caching. Yeah, you can have you can have a, a difference between a cached Docker build that takes like uh, you know, seconds to, to rebuild. And then like you delete your cache and it takes like eight minutes. Right. <laughs> exactly. So if we can jump as high a level as we can possibly get, and let's talk in that, in that realm, you know, as a super high level, like as a business person or like a, a VC or a CEO that's worried about your costs and your revenues and your users experience, like, does Docker matter for them or does it just kind of make developers lives easier? Hmm. So, and if it just makes developers lives easier, why does it matter to them? Like, for example, you could say stack overflow. Oh, it just like helps developers like discuss problems and get them solved. Oh, but that's going to decrease my costs because, um, you know, what's the practical benefit that's going to decrease my costs because if my programmer, I don't need to hire an expert in every single area. If they're learning a new area, they can get answers from an expert in that little area of computer science just by posting it to Stack Overflow. So it's going to save my developer time, which is going to save me money. Because even if you're not paying an actual hourly rate, you're still basically paying for people's time when you pay them a salary. Even if your salary is a monthly salary and it's $150,000 a year, you're paying for people's time. So when you yeah. save their time, you save money. Because when before you needed 10 developers, now you need eight because of Stack Overflow or nine. So for Docker, can you walk me through some sort of scenario where like the comp the CEO of the same company before and after when his company adopts Docker, where does he get a benefit that he actually notices that's tangible except for happier developers? Yeah. So, um, I mean, happier developers is a benefit, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I honestly like think back to even uh, group threads. Like when I came in, yeah, feel free and, to talk about and, it. Yeah. Um, uh, it was running on Docker, which was great, but um, Docker was not actually being utilized to its even a tiny bit of its potential. And um, so the, the platform was crashing and things like that. And because it was in Docker, because we had it in Docker, we were able to take it and scale it and it solved the problems of the platform crashing. Like that's what solved it. The fact that we could actually scale it um, with Docker. So like, obviously that's just an example of a benefit in one little tiny company that I'm sure other, many other companies have felt this. The same. So why would it, why would it crash less? Like, what well, what was the benefit? Because, How? because, um, because you can, you can, um, horizontally scale. You don't have to just vertically scale. You can take all the way back to the mainframe example. Mainframe is a good example of something that's vertically scaling. Ah, so this horizontal scaling. You have to make it bigger. You have to make it bigger. Heard a lot about this the horizontal horizontal scaling. scaling is like think like networking. Like yeah. you're just adding more and more instances of it, and so that Docker gives you that 
capability of doing that. It's very difficult to, to have something that's just running straight off a computer and horizontally scale it. You can totally do it, but it just you have to take a lot of manual configuration, and it's it's difficult. It's definitely difficult. Okay, so let let's. This is a challenge, but we should try to do it. So let's work all the way to the practical benefit from the CEO of the company. Then so and we'll just work it step by step so people can follow it. So it, it makes it to where your software can horizontal, we'll get into why and later, not right this second. So it makes it to where your software can, let's just assume it makes it to where your, your software can horizontally scale. And it's way easier. Boom, now it's an oversimplification, but now with Docker, my software before that couldn't horizontally scale, well, of course it could, but it was really hard to make it horizontally scale. Now we can horizontally scale it. <clears throat> so let's walk all the way through to the end where what's the practical benefit? Your software is going to be able to handle, handle um, bigger loads more easily because of horizontal scaling. You're going to do a much less better downtime. Job about that. Less downtime. I mean, it's real. If you can't, if you're having to vertically scale and you hit a limit, it's real that your stuff crashes. That happens. Perfect. And it did bad. happen at Group Threads. Like, yeah. I remember we had our biggest day in, in sales. <laughs> Oh shit, do you remember I this? remember this, dude, I still remember this. <laughs> wow, that's sick. Oh man, okay, you gotta try to help me get all the details right. But we had our biggest day in sales, and didn't the software just like crash? It was like was hundreds of dollars slow? a minute that I was losing. <laughs> Holy shit, this is a crazy memory that I, I didn't know I still had, so. And that was when we horizontally scaled. That was that day. <laughs> now, I've been working on getting it to horizontally scale, and I wasn't fully ready, but it's like, dang it, we got to get this thing in. <laughs> holy shit, we did some crazy shit at Groove Threads, man. Like, holy crap. We made it, like, not horizontally scale to, like, horizontally scaling within 24 hours. <laughs> that was badass, man. I was so proud of you. So, um, that was incredible. So it can make it to where your, your app will horizontally scale. That's just one example. I'm sure there's many other ones. Um, let's try to come up with a couple other ones. I can yeah, think so, of a couple other ones, but let me, let's talk about that one. Okay. So people really get it. So if your app can horizontally scale, you don't have like one server size where like, okay, we've got four gigabytes of Ram on our server. This is our server that runs our app. And then say you have a really successful advertisement or Mark Cuban retweets one of your ads and then it goes viral and like you get a whole bunch of customers, you're selling fucking Snuggy Snuggles or Snuggy Wuggies or whatever, then bam, everyone wants to buy Snuggy Wuggies and you were only set up to handle like, you know, 400 concurrent users or 80 or something and you've got 5,000 and your app crashes. Then you're just like group threads where you're losing hundreds of dollars per like whatever. I don't remember what it was, but it was a pretty crazy actually. Was it like, do you remember? What I said, because we calculated. I don't remember, but it was like, it was like. It was like a $80, $90 a minute or something. Yeah, it was like definitely calculated by the minute. We're like, we're losing money on the minute. Yeah, and so gross profit on that. So we're maybe we're losing $40 a fucking minute, you know? And if your Snuggy Wuggies just got retweeted and you're on Shark Tank, or you're, you just got your, your shit on Shark Tank, and you just pitched it, and it's like, bring me the fucking money, you know what I mean? And uh, you've got thousands and thousands of people hitting your e-commerce site. And what happens? Because you can't horizontally scale, because you don't have Docker, you don't know shit about Docker, your your shit crashes. It can't scale up and down. Awesome. So that's a good. That was the other thing I was gonna say. That's a good one. Scaling up, like that's the thing we think about. But scaling down, actually, that saves you money too. Like your big sales over, or you go into your summer slow period. Like scaling down, like that's that's useful. This is you don't great. want everything running max load to handle, a, you know. 
your busiest season when you're not in your busiest season. So horizontally scaling, um, I write really slow, so you, you got to give me some filler, but horizontally scaling saves you money when you get the huge surge in traffic because it can scale up doo -doo -doo -doo, really fast, mm -hmm. horizontally scaling, which is massively easier with Docker. Um, and then it can save you money when you're not busy. It'll contract back down and you're not paying, you know, $30 an hour for all those servers that you need when you're at max capacity, you're spending $5 per hour or 50 cents on your servers. Mm -hmm. I mean, it can be a huge difference between peak traffic and, and non-peak traffic. Um, so scaling up um, and scaling down for yeah. different reasons. Scaling up, as a business person, you care about that so your site doesn't crash and then your transactions can't go through. So it's the lost revenue and pissed off customers. Um, scaling down, so you don't just have that, so that expense, um, you don't have to keep your servers at kind of the most expensive level where they can handle max capacity the whole time. You know what I mean? And then you're just wasting money. Yeah. So, okay. So another, another, uh, way that this could be like super practical or useful for like the business person is the aspect of microservices. Um, and microservices is like kind of a, a term that like you hear thrown around. It's kind of like, I guess you could call it a buzzword, um, but it actually is real. Like it's really useful and Docker makes microservices just that much easier, like so much easier. And what, what a microservice essentially does is it lets you take your, your large code base and break it down into the separate, uh, break it up into lots of separate applications that all communicate with each other. Um, through like networking and um, the benefit of that is you you're going to get uh, you can take your software team and you can divide up your software team to the different aspects of the software that they need to work on rather than having every single software developer have to know the whole platform uh, that makes sense and we never took advantage of microservices at group threats right we I wouldn't say we never did we were starting to we we did have it broken up into some services so like for the api we just have like one we did only have one api like I, ideally in a microservice you have a whole api just to handle users and registration and then a separate api to handle maybe your transactions and things like or whatever that. you'd kind of logically break it yeah. up so the benefit for there is just for the ease of development right ease of development and the individual software developers don't have to know the whole platform so that means you can hire Fewer developers, basically. I guess when you get real down to it, you can hire fewer developers. Yeah. So our developers, we're trying to hire as few of you as possible. <laughs> you guys cost like $85,000 a year if you're in Austin for full time, and then you really got to pitch them on like, dude, our startup is super cool though, and you get equity, blah, 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 you know, and it's a hard sell even then. So maybe you got to pay them 120000 Or give them all and these free food. And us business guys, we don't want to pay $120,000 times two, three, four, five. You know, we, we, if it's five, we'd rather take it down to four if we could. <laughs> <laughs> Even though we love y'all, it's too, too expensive. So um, just have an unlimited amount. Um, what else? Do we miss anything? What? How, so the e, it, okay, let me uh, take you along this tangent. So it increases the ease of development in a lot of different ways, right? What, what ways does it increase ease of development? Because I can see if we establish that it increases the ease of development in some ways, I could say that goes to faster product iterations. Boom, now product people <laughs> and CEOs that are product people, they're starting to light up too. They care now. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, I think the main one is that aspect of Microsoft. How does it make your application development cycle faster? faster? Is there any other way? Um, hmm. I mean, sure. you spend less time dealing with issues that are just due to your local development environment and the and production environment I mean, being different. You kind of go maybe going back to that separation between your DevOps and your software developers. That's going to help it roll out faster. Like the moment that they're done, like it's really easy to roll it out. Yeah. Um, Man, do we, we we can't we can't really clearly define though why it because I've heard about I've heard about this but I can't I don't clearly know why why it makes your um, you're you're able to develop things at faster the fast the fact that the fact that it's it's all these like little super annoying inconveniences that you don't really think about that it solves that really add up yeah so like the aspect that it just you build it and you roll it out and oh it's working on production like it was when I built it that can eat up a lot of time that can that's a real problem that is a actually a real problem right so you you build it in development then you're like oh yeah it looks sexy like it's tight you know perfect that new feature worked great and then you deploy it to the production environment or hopefully your staging environment first <laughs> This shit's getting real. This is like the early part of group that's where it's like, QA. send it yep. straight to production. You know? <laughs> oh, and you've got QA costs. Mm, would those go down? Your QA costs? Um, Maybe. But the big the big thing is, as soon as you run it in and get it working in development, it's going to be much faster to get into the production environment. Yeah, and that's also sure. even think about this too, because this happens. This totally happens. Um, you have it working and you submit it and it breaks, you know, it breaks your build or your staging and you're like, man, this isn't working. Or you send out an email to everybody in your co to everybody in your company and say, and, and say like, you guys broke it. <laughs> but it just turns out that like, um, it just turns out that maybe it's working on your computer just because you just happen to have like this one environment variable that's set you know, somewhere way down deep and it somehow is causing it to work on your system and a computer system that doesn't have that environment variable set, which is like everybody else, it doesn't work on it. You don't, that Docker will really limit those types of problems. And those are real problems. That so it's going to limit, it's going to limit, it's going to cut down on the, um, I'm going to write a blog post about this, by the way, so i got to keep the things on here. So it's going to cut down on the amount of just bugs you have, honestly, it's the, the amount of bugs and confusing errors and stuff which speeds up development time, obviously. Yeah. Less time spent on bugs is more time spent on like new features or polishing or like cooler things. Because if you think about it, like a bug, fixing a bug. Okay, you know, as long as you can like reproduce it on, that's like, that's like the number one thing actually. When it comes to fixing a bug, somebody says there's a bug, you need to fix the bug. Number one thing, number one thing is, let me get it, let me reproduce that bug. Right, reproduce of course. It. You yeah, can't you reproduce obviously it, have to reproduce you it. can't fix it. And bugs, the worst bugs to solve are bugs that only show up in production because you can't reproduce yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. You I can mean, only reproduce it on production and you about. can't risk just playing with it on production just to crash the platform. So you have to spend hours and hours and hours and hours of time figuring out what is that one little thing that's making it break on production that's not making it break on my system. And with Docker, it's not that stuff like that can't ever happen, um, but it, it really narrow, lowers that way way down so that's gonna that's gonna per 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 unit <laughs> per unit of software developers yeah <laughs> you know, uh given like this your number of uh software developers you're gonna get more output per software developer 
just because they're spending less time on these on these bugs, basically. Yeah. So, and actually, um, I, I worked at a company that took me a week to set up my computer. If they had used Docker, I could have just installed Docker and everything else would have been containers. Boom. Okay, so I think we covered that. So the business reasons is horizontally scaling. And now we're going to go just talk about horizontal scaling, by the way. So horizontally scaling, so scaling up, so your software doesn't crash when you got peak volume, scaling down so you don't have to keep your servers at peak volume preparedness and waste money when there's no one on there at 3 a.m. in the morning or during the summer when you're slow or whatever. Um, microservices, so you can divide up the software and, and hire fewer developers or they'll be able to get to speed and productive faster. So you're not spending uh, so much money when they're, when they're less productive and less time fixing bugs because you can reproduce them. You can reproduce them because that there's less problems where like, oh, it was working in development, now it's not working in production. And then you know, you're pulling your hair out and those take a long time. So less time wasted there, more output per developer because they're spending more time on building features, polishing the product, Thing that things that users actually see as value adds versus just trying to hunt down these bizarre bugs. So um, I think that's the recap right there. And that'll be a whole piece of uh, content on its own because I'm really trying to give some non-technical people or people that are kind of technical, even pretty damn technical, okay, but don't have time to research a specific topic. I'm trying to let them know what the business benefits are. Because a lot of times the decision maker doesn't know the business benefits because they hear some developer talking about it in some like developer jargon way. And they're like, no, trust me, it's totally badass because it's like containers and it's more efficient with the kernel. And they're like, okay, sorry, bro. I don't give a fuck. <laughs> like, I don't care if it like uses the same kernel and all that stuff. Like, sorry, man. So we're not doing that, you know? And then the developer's going to be pissed. So getting that communication better between the management and business decision makers, which aren't always developers. I know developers are able to make those decisions too. Um, I think is a key thing that I'm trying to do anyways. So that was awesome, man. So why is it so much easier to scale things horizontally? I guess it's kind of obvious, but can you make it even more With obvious? With Docker, why is it so much easier to scale yes. things horizontally? And by the way, we got to talk about what the hell is Kubernetes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At the end of this, but don't worry about Kubernetes. That, for that actually, this this could have a nice bridge into that. Okay, great. Kubernetes is all about scaling. <laughs> right, and I was learning about <laughs> Kubernetes, and I was like, what? The YAML file can talk to the Kilo worker that shoots off from the Kubernetes something. I don't know. They made up all these words, you know, workers and pods and stuff. I was like, the labels. I was like, oh, my God. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so it really all goes back to this aspect that the container works the same way no matter where it's run. That's what makes it so easy to horizontally scale because you can now um, you can now spin up multiple instances of it. Every single instance is going to operate the same way. It's going to work like you want it to, um, and all you have to do is just spin it up. Uh, what makes it difficult to horizontally scale just multiple, lots of computers is they're not going to be consistent with each other. And in order for horizontal scaling to actually work. You need all your computers configured 100% exactly the same way. Or you have those production problems like crazy. You have production problems or you have somebody who goes and visits the website because, you know, you have like a load balancer sitting behind all these um, things. And you'll have somebody who visits the website and they reload the website and all of a sudden, like, it's different the second time they go to the website. <laughs> oh, yeah, that would be bad. <laughs> Can't have that. Yeah. 
<laughs> Whoa, I'm logged into someone else. What the hell? Like, my name's Zach, not Stacy. <laughs> like, or I'm just not logged in at all. What the hell? Yeah, yeah exactly. Like, you'll log in, you'll like get that session set up with that, and then you'll go and log in again and, or hit the reload the page, and now it's talking to a different computer. That wouldn't work. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's just that aspect of it that reproducible, like, it's reproducible, it's consistent. I mean, I think that's mainly. Um, and caching, I mean, there's other things that make it really good for that, like the fact that it's cached, so it's cache really easy, so like when you're scaling it up, you can just pull it from your cache, it will spin up very quickly. Oh, um, here's another thing, the fact that it's all sharing the same kernel makes it, when you need to scale up immediately, you only, that takes seconds to boot, because it doesn't have to spin up the virtual hardware, and then, you know how long it takes to, for your computer to like, communicate with get for that your computer's kernel to go and start communicating with all this virtual hardware and all all that's already done because the main parent computer that's running all that's already sitting there running all it has to do is just start talking to the kernel so you're man james instantly it's really really hitting me like how big docker is now because of the horizontal scaling thing i don't know why it didn't sink in before i think it's just because i was so busy you know, being CEO and running the company and worried about all this crazy random stuff, you know, like that I would be like, no, don't talk to me about that. Like, I can't learn about that right now. Like I got this other problem that's crazy. You know what I mean? And so it may be part of that was my own doing. So I could have carved out some time to be like, okay, so what is Docker? Why is it so big? Like really, really explain it to me. So what's hitting me right now, right? The second is just how big horizontally scaling is before is because, um, of that problem when you, your website gets slammed and then you can't service the users properly or there's no one on it um, and then you're wasting money. How did you solve that problem before Docker? It must have been terribly difficult. <laughs> yeah, so to do as a lean you small had, company. You, you know, did have containers before Docker. Right. Docker's not the first, like you had containers, but it was with, with virtual, uh, like vir uh, it was like with these virtual containers, like virtual box and um, VMware, I guess mainly VMware. Um, and yeah, you just had to deal with the fact that, oh, if I need to spin up another one, it's going to take a little bit of time for it to spin up because it's got to go boot the whole computer, basically, in virtual And was space. it less accessible? You know, like... A lot less accessible. The three-person team that's just hacking out, you know, the, in the early days of Instagram or something. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Less, yeah. And there, there's Docker. One thing that's really cool about Docker is not just the technology behind it. The technology is amazing. Their community around it is just as amazing. So it's, 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 um, there's, there's really been this big community that's come around Docker that's made it, um, that's made it so much more accessible. I guess it's, it's so much more accessible than VMware. Like yeah. VMware existed, it's just not really accessible to the average developer. Like you would only do that sort of a thing if you're a big company and could afford to pay a bunch of money for DevOps. You're as little small startups. They didn't mess with that. They just spun up one little computer and we're like, this works. Like we're fine. Like when we like start having stealing problems like hopefully by then that means we have enough money to go hire a bunch of devs. hopefully we got some vc money or something yeah exactly <laughs> now your little small startups they can just like start playing with docker it's so accessible so accessible yeah and then when they start having success like we did they can horizontally scale up and down yeah cool so okay we know about the horizontal scaling with docker that's really hitting me how important that is because you know in my little nascent computer science mind, I was like, oh, well, you could always horizontally scale, like, no big deal. It's just the same thing. Um, but uh, I'm really getting that. So that was an awesome thing. We got a lot of the business 
reasons why business people, the suits, the dreaded suits people, why they should care about Docker. And we kind of gave them some insight where they can jump off and learn more. Um, but scaling horizontally, there's more there. Kubernetes is related to that, right? Or not even related. I mean, that's like literally what it's all about, correct? Yeah, horizontal Kubernetes scaling. is all about scaling. Okay, so, so tell us about this horizontal scaling. Tell us about Kubernetes and Rancher is important somehow as well. Yeah, so um, Docker is able to be horizontally scaled, but Docker in and of itself doesn't do the horizontal scaling part or what sometimes people refer to as the scheduling or the orchestration platform. Um, so Docker is, you know, it's like the individual like containers that are being scaled out, but what, who says when to scale up? Who says when to scale down? Who's talk, who says when to add more computing resources? Who does all that? That's your orchestration platform. And that's not Docker. Um, Docker's actually created their own, um, orchestration, orchestration platform called Docker Swarm. Okay. Um, that's what Docker Swarm is. If you heard of it. Uh, but that's not what Docker was originally created for. And so Kubernetes, that's what Kubernetes solves as well. Interestingly enough, Kubernetes, I think, I'm pretty sure, has basically positive, has been around before Docker. Um, Kubernetes so, has been around before yes. Docker? So and that's funded by Google, right? Kind of like Angular is? Yes. Okay. So I think Kubernetes kind of came out of Google's internal infrastructure. Um, and so you can see that like horizontal scaling has been around for a long time. It's just Docker, um, was this piece of that puzzle that was that because of its consistent nature and the fact that, that, um, it was like a gasoline end, to the mat. Yeah. You know? It kind of like runs everywhere how it's supposed to. It's like the perfect thing for Kubernetes to use before Kubernetes was oh, using so Docker. Like perfect storm. It was like using other sorts of containers or like VM, VMware things or, I'm not exactly sure what, okay. but um, yeah, so it's like a perfect match for Kubernetes. And now Kubernetes, they pretty much only deal with Docker just because of. So what are your options for doing this scheduling? Which thank God I finally know what scheduling is. Scheduling this, scheduling that. Everyone was talking about scheduling. I was like, hold up a minute. I need to like <laughs> pause the video and be like, well, I guess I could have. I don't know why I didn't. Like look up scheduling, you know, like what the hell are they talking about? So I guess scheduling is just like, okay, I know with Docker you can have the same thing running everywhere else, but who's going to control how many, when we're yeah. scaling up and down. So when you don't have scheduling, you just have to do that yourself manually. Got it. Okay. So what are all your options for scheduling? There's Docker. How do we make sense of this? There's Docker swarm. There's Kubernetes. There's Mesos. There's, there's too many probably <laughs> Mesos. So Rancher. Just walk me through this. this. Interesting. Let, let me, let me talk about Rancher because okay. Rancher kind of, kind of encapsulates some of these major um, orchestration platforms and Rancher is kind of in itself an orchestration platform. So this kind of sounds really confusing and vague right now, but, uh, basically Rancher was, is this, um, web portal that makes it really easy to manage your orchestration platform. So before Rancher, for the most part, management of your orchestration platform was done all through these little command line tools, which are great, useful. I love command line tools. But if you just want to get a big picture of like what's going on with every with everything, um, it's nice to be able to actually like visualize it all at once. Or if you need to pull it up on a comp some computer because something crashed, or you know you don't need you don't want to be dependent on having to pull up your terminal on your computer. Um, and so it's, it's just this web portal for that, and it's really elegantly done. It works really well. And I guess <clears throat> um, mainly what Rancher's brought to the table 
is taking this these orchestration platforms and kind of bringing it down to the level of like a small software team so or a startup so if you're google or if you're that's even a bad example because there's such a big company if you're um a mid-sized software company yeah. with like 10 employees and a thousands of users yeah whatever like you can you can afford to figure out how to set up an orchestration platform yeah if you're like a two-person or one-person software team um like you don't have time to worry about that stuff and so rancher just kind of it, it just made it so much easier to set it up and to get it running and to get it on off off the, the horizontal scaling the orchestration schedule. platform right. off the ground getting this orchestration platform off the ground because it's a lot of configuring and things like that so rancher um had let you choose between these four different get with four different schedulers um kubernetes was one of them docker swarms one of them one of them was cattle which is this internal rancher um scheduler which actually they built cattle because they, they wanted to, they wanted to take a docker approach to orchestration so before um before rancher and before docker swarm all the orchestration platforms had were created before docker so it wasn't yeah. they weren't created with docker in mind okay so um so i'll, I'll specifically refer to those two as, as mesos and, and uh, kubernetes so docker swarm was created with a, kind of a docker orchestration platform in mind uh, but they were mainly focused on Docker. And so Rancher, when they created their platform, they created Cattle, which was basically Docker Swarm, the next generation of Docker Swarm. They kind of created, they kind of took Doc, they kind of took what Docker Swarm was and made it so much better and envisioned. Cattle did? Yeah. Okay. Which was created by Rancher. And they kind of envisioned that um, eventually Docker Swarm was going to replace Cattle over time. Okay. But what happened was um, the uh, Kubernetes just got more and more popular and got a bigger – well, it already was popular at the time, but it just got a bigger community around it. And um, <clears throat> I guess I guess it was more with their their information from, from their own users. It turns out that when people – most of their effort, most of Ranger's effort into these four different orchestration platforms that they supported – Four different schedulers that they supported: uh, Kubernetes, Mesos, uh, Docker Swarm, and Cattle. Most of their effort was poured into making Cattle uh, really usable, right off the ground, because that was their own internal one. Right. Second most effort was put into Kubernetes because um, that Kubernetes was just so popular, so many people used it. Yeah. Very few people actually used Docker Swarm because of its limitations, and very few people use Mesos because Mesos is not as popular mesos is more used for orchestration of big data and those sort of things it's not really your average startup okay. or even your average company that's going to choose to use mesos as their orchestration platform so based off that information they realize like <clears throat> what we're trying to do all we're really trying to do is just make this bring orchestration down another level for people make it more accessible yeah so they realized why don't we just pour all our effort into making Rancher be the super accessible version of, or super accessible piece to Kubernetes. And so Rancher 2, that they're, they've just announced this actually, they have, it's in like alpha stage. Rancher 2, they're actually gonna do away with support for 
all the uh, schedulers except for Kubernetes. So, oh shit, so you better, if you were learning cattle, oh wait, or it's cattle will still probably work, huh? They're going to they're 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 do away with cattle do. because, yeah. because they, they realize that cows are just their own internal thing that's supposedly going to be, that we, that we envisioned eventually being replaced by Dr. Swarm, but nobody's yeah. using Dr. Swarm. So, so if you're using any of those, you're fucked. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, you're totally not. Well, I, I first realized this must be important because I, on my last trip to, to San Francisco, I was there on business. I was living in this like hacker house. It was an experience all of its own, you know? Yeah, it's got to stay in a real hacker house, guys. It was so cool. But I, I was in like a hacker house with just, you know, just only computer science guys, um, super smart. One was like a master DevOps guy that you would have loved. Um, and then another guy like worked at SpaceX and was into like some other stuff that I didn't really connect to. And there was like, a badass iOS engineer, the most badass iOS engineer I've ever met. Um, and um, the, 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 the DevOps, whatever, he's probably pissed from calling him the DevOps guy. I know he's not, but um, the guy that was, that was really into that, that sort of stuff was just like freaking out about Kubernetes the whole time. And he was just like, I'm, he's reminding me of you, Jam. He was like on the floor, like coding with it and like his Mac. And he was just freaking out about how cool. I would have used a Linux computer. <laughs> Thank you. Good, <laughs> good job. Uh, you know, tell me about how awesome Kubernetes was and uh, was super passionate about it. And uh, that's when I was like, wow, I need to go figure out what this Kubernetes thing is. So walk me through a little bit more. This is kind of the hardcore technical section maybe, but... How does Kubernetes work at kind of a medium level, not super high level, because I know it's an orchestration platform. Yeah. It, it helps you horizontally scale up and down. I get that part. But do these terms matter, workers and pods? And yeah, they do. Okay. So um, actually, just to give you some context of where I'm coming from, um, most of my experience with orchestration platforms has actually been with Rancher, specifically cattle. So um, I'm not actually approaching this from a really in-depth knowledge of Kubernetes. Okay. You know, six months, a year from now, I definitely want to know Kubernetes very well because I, I really work a lot with Rancher and so since they're only moving over to Kubernetes, like I have to learn Kubernetes, um, not have to in a bad way. Like I'm really excited to. Um, and so I've, I know what Kubernetes is from a super high level. I know it's an orchestration platform and I know that um, pods, um, essentially, I guess maybe I'll approach the terminology and I don't know if I really want to do this disservice, but, um, the terminology I'm familiar with is branches terminology from their 1.0 release, which is actually going to change in their 2.0 to for the support well, for the guidance. Guidance. So okay. all my terminology is off because, um, my, I'm, I'm like, I can't even remember if pods are a single instance of a container running or like. <laughs> Like one that represents the whole service. Like I should actually probably know that, but I actually don't because my terminology just, is off because um, I'm approaching it from a different angle. But um, terminology, let's just put terminology aside because okay. um, really when it comes down to it, I really just don't want to get hung up on the terminology aspect okay. of it. Uh, let's just understand like how – what's what's kind of in common with all these orchestration platforms that makes an orchestration platform. Um, and so um, – the orchestration platform has basically a, a service. I'm not sure what the term is for Kubernetes, but a service that uh, represents a single um, application that you're trying to run. So you, okay. let's, give, let's give an actual example. 
Let's just do group threads. It's really easy. So like the, the core group threads API. Yeah. All right. We might call it this service like group threads core. All right. Um, and you should have called it that. That sounds pretty sexy. <laughs> Not if you want into microservices, you know, then you want to split it up. Oh, okay. Well, well, I think it sounds cool. Anyways. Um, so, and you know, we might have another one like front, front, uh, landing page or, you know, the main web application. Okay. Um, or if you had microservice, you know, might have like a user's API. So like that you have something that represents the core service. And then inside of that, it, you can scale that service up and down. Um, and, and when it goes up, it's just going to have lots of different instances of containers running. Um, those, I think maybe a pod is that the equivalent of a service with Kubernetes. So you have a pod and okay. all these like. And then uh, a worker is like the whole extra server that you spin up, maybe? <laughs> so I think that's more specific with Kubernetes, but it's basically. Okay, I might be wrong about this, but orchestration platforms, they do have to have, they do have to have a service that's monitoring um, your actual servers. So, uh, man, if I had an actual, actual coin, I could show this better, but basically an orchestration platform is like two, there's like two sides to, to the coin. Right. There's the one side that deals with the actual resources. So like how many servers you have, um, your storage, your like the, your actual resources at disposal, and then the other side deals with all the different applications you're trying to run. And that orchestration platform is basically the mediator between the two. And so it it looks at your your resources and says, okay, we have three servers right here. These two servers are super overly utilized. This one's not being used very much. Let's move some of these containers, shuffle them over to this server. So that we can we can distribute the resources better. And if you have a really sophisticated setup, we didn't have one this sophisticated. You could even tie into AWS APIs or some cloud API and be like, "Oh, I need more resources. Let's actually let's actually order a whole new server." Yeah. Or let's actually like you know once your your levels get down low enough, let's put everything on one server and just get rid of this server. That's your orchestration platform's doing all that. And in order for it to do that, it has to be it has to have a, some sort of service that's going to be monitoring the, your actual resources, like what you have at disposal. Okay, where does the load balancer come in? Okay, so your load balancer, um, <clears throat> when a, when a request is made to your application, uh, your load balancer is the part that determines which server that request is going to go to. And usually, you have two layers of load balancers. So you have the load balancer. Um, it might all be handled by a single load balancer, but basically there's there's two aspects to it. It has to tell what server am I going to go to and what container on that server am I going to go to. Right. Okay, well, that's pretty much that. So let's... Oh, wait, wait. One more, one more thing about the, I was going to say about the load balancer. <laughs> so uh, sometimes they might set up where they have, um, you know, let's say you have eight servers running. And you might not have a container on that server that the request hits because you might just be just load balancing all eight servers. All requests are just load balancing across all servers, just generically. So it could hit any one of them. And it hits the load balancer inside of that server. And if there's no container on that uh, server, it'll just then just put it, redirect it to a different server that yeah. has that container on it. Cool. So all that load balancer technology handles all that. Cool. All right. So I think that's a really good uh whatever interview uh, on uh 
on Docker and containers and horizontally scaling and all this other stuff. But there's one other thing that I, uh, well, there's two things, but there's one other main thing I wanted to talk to you about. So what's going on right now? Is this an emerging thing? What's going on with spot instances? <clears throat> how, yeah. how long has spot instances been around? What's going on here? And then we'll get to spot it, but just the, the specific company, but we're just going to talk about spot instances for a second. Um, first of all, I already know some of it, but just explain what a, what a spot instances are at like the highest level of someone who doesn't even know what they are yet. Yeah. Let me actually go way back to that history lesson I was telling about. Oh, and... man, he's just so boring. <laughs> <They're not> boring. <laughs> um, the, basically, we ended with – it was when VM – it was the solution that VMware solved. Um, and Docker Container yeah, solved exactly. the same thing. And this aspect that if you have underutilized servers – then you can, you know, if they're virtualized, you can shuffle them around and shut off huge sections of your data center. All right. What do you do with those huge sections that are turned off? And that's what spot instances are. Basically, basically spot instances will take um, servers that aren't being used on, like AWS will take their servers that aren't being used and they're offering them up to, to, for people to bid on at really low prices. The caveat is that when those servers are needed, um, they rip it right out from, from <laughs> rip it right away from you. So. Yeah, so they're like, boom, bitch, like you're done. We need this shit to go make some money, you know? Exactly. Because you're getting it out of what, a 90% discount? Huge discount. discount. You can like get up to 90%. I, I consistently get 89%, 88%, like really close to 90% discount consistently. Oh, my God. So what if you're a company that um, – has like, you know, 5% of your, 5% uh, uh, of revenue or 10% of revenue is just server costs. You know what I mean? And what if you could have those be cut down by 90%? You'd, imp you'd improve the net income of your company by, you know, four to 9%. You could have a business that's making, you know, a million dollars a year, jump to making $2 million a year. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So, um, but but they can't take advantage of it for anything that they need to be used in production because boom, randomly that server can yeah, be ripped Yeah, you can't have that happen. Yeah. So really when it's what most people use spot instances for. So what good are they? Yeah. So most people will use a spot instance for, um, I can't, I, I keep thinking I'm saying spot instances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Anyways, um, uh, most people use spot instances for big data problems got it uh so they might use it for uh oh we need to solve this uh machine learning problem and we just need a ton of resources to do this and it's going to take uh you know an hour for us to solve it and then we don't need those servers anymore yeah or maybe um we have this uh video that we need to render yeah i'm not sure probably they don't, that's not used as much because usually Videos are rendered using graphics cards, but it's just big, huge, huge problems that need solved that you don't need those servers running constantly. That a lot of people will, will use spot instances for. And um, there is a way to actually get a reliable time with your spot instance, but it's like, you know, you can only go like a few hours or something like that. 
and um, it's 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 not something that you want to run something in production with. So would I be right to assume that if you change this and you could use them in a in a production environment for something that's always on, because as soon as one goes down, you found a way to somehow like automatically spin up another one. Yeah. Then you'd unlock huge value. You unlock huge value from it. Yes, and that's that's what um, that's what spot. That's what Spot Inst, this company, has, has been doing. And they just raised, uh, I don't know, actually the date that they raised it, but it was recently. They just raised a $15 million Series A, so they're probably valued at like you know, $100 million company or more. Um, you know, 200 I don't, I don't know if, I, if they uh, publicly released what their valuation was. So they're solving this problem, and we both don't, we're not super experts on them, but, but as far as we know, Spotting is solving this problem um, where you can't use it. Uh, you can't use these these spot instances in an environment where you need them to always be on, running twenty four seven, because they can get yanked away from you. And they're creating a solution where it automatically, as soon as a server gets gets yanked offline, they spin up another one and divert stuff. Right. Yeah. And they actually get a little. You do get a. You, you do get like a heads up of like you got five minutes to. Get the new server up, oh, right, yeah. or, or things like that. <laughs> Literally do it like that second. But but actually, you wouldn't even necessarily be screwed because if they're all coming down at different times, that's okay if if, if if it's completely offline. Yeah. For a certain amount of time, if you're load balancing your stuff and you have like duplicates of your thing of your services running. Yeah. So, um, but spot in spot ints they advertise that you can save up to ninety percent off your server costs because with spot instances that's how much you can save the caveat is they take they charge um they charge you 20 percent of what you saved and when you do the math for that it comes out around savings around 66 percent the last time i saw that problem of how much i was actually saving was a while ago so i can't i can't remember exactly what how much you actually save, but it's somewhere around 68%. So it's kind of actually a little bit of false advertising. You can't save 90%. They say you can, but you can't because you have to pay them 20%. Right. You so save. you're currently working on something to make that whole service from Spotinst be obsolete and people can save the whole 90%. Yeah. So I, I think that uh, there's no reason why you can't have an open source application that takes advantage of um, spot instances where you don't have to pay any percentage for for it. You just run this uh, service that handles spinning up and take, tearing down these spot instances yourself. You just run that yourself. And so rather than uh, paying somebody as a service, just run it run that yourself. And uh, how's development going on that? Are you guys have a name for it or anything? Or is so there a I, public, public GitHub account they can they can go to that I can link below. Yeah. So there is a GitHub repo for it. And there is a name for it, and development actually has been kind of slow. Uh, development has okay, started on it, up, but so. um, you could give it a star on GitHub. That would probably help encourage me to go work on it more. And um, hit me up, contact me on um, Gitter. I have I have a my GitHub account is I also have it on a Gitter account, so you can go there and contact me about it. And we'll get this guy in San Francisco that loves Kubernetes. We'll get him to help you. Yeah, and if you're interested in um, if you're interested in contributing to it or figuring out how you can help with it, that would be great too. What are you calling it? Yeah, so the, I'm calling it Spot Awesome. So 
<laughs> okay, we might have to get the get the marketing and PR people in here. <laughs> We're renaming this bitch right now. No, I'm just kidding. So Thought awesome might work, by the way. So don't. It might. I'm not attached about. to the name at all. When I when I come up with a name and name something, I'm like, <sighs> I, I don't want to just just type random keys on my keyboard so I can actually create it. I need to actually name it something. But I don't want to sit here for the next few hours thinking about it, so I just give it a name. And Dude, we're just going to call it Spot Awesome, and it'll have this little GIF animation that normally goes with it, where like a unicorn shoots up with like some rainbows coming out of its ass, and it goes like, like across Spot Awesome, <laughs> you know? Like, <laughs> I'm really getting into it. I think it might be good. <laughs> so, um, cool. By the time this is done, we'll let's have a website up that says like Spot Awesome you know, dot com or something. I'll link it below too. Yeah. And then it can just be like a, a short advertisement for it, a one pager. Sounds okay. Good. Yeah. And also uh, let me mention, there actually is an open source solution to spot instances that actually has been one that was created and um, it's, it's worth looking at for sure. Um, I yeah. still, I still want to build spot awesome and finish it because this solution for it, um, it require only works on AWS and requires using this AWS Lambda service. So it's not as, it's not, it's not flexible. Um, and I, I have a friend who specifically contacted the developer of this and he was mentioning that he was thinking about charging people for it, which is the whole, defeats the whole purpose of doing Being this. open source. Yeah. So we're gonna get it popping right here. So Spot Awesome, I'm gonna promote it on my page uh, and we'll just see, see how we, how we deal with it, but um, what's the timeline you're looking at to, uh, it's a, it's kind of a bullshit timeline. I know you don't really know for sure. Yeah, because I don't really have a timeline. I know, but um, realistically, it could easily take up to a year for me to get around to actually like finishing it or getting like that beta version out. If I was, if it was the only thing I was working on, um, that could definitely be shortened, but there's some other really high profile projects I'm working on, so. Okay, well, what are those? <laughs> The most high profile, the most high profile project I'm working on right now is building a native rendering experience for React. And I'm working what? with a genius developer in Australia on it. What the fuck? Why would you need that? You need a native rendering thing for React? For like like React Native? What are you talking about? <clears throat> React Native for desktop applications. What? Are you serious? I'm serious. We've already got some we already have some alpha stuff working so you're gonna be able to write your application in react and then like i don't know ship it or whatever i don't know how you really even deploy desktop software and then someone can download it and use it on which operating system windows ios and linux nice so you can actually build windows desktop applications writing in react yes and um there actually is currently uh there has been a solution for doing that for a little while um, with um, React Render to Electron, which Electron is essentially the equivalent of Cordova for desktop applications. It runs on top, behind the scenes, it actually has an actual real browser with the V8 runtime running behind it. And um, all the, everything that's being rendered is actually being, is actually being rendered by an actual um, browser it just has access to your to your operating system APIs. And so in order to make it actually look native, um, it all has to be styled with CSS to make it appear like the native 
product, which they've done a good job at, but you lose efficiency. This solution that we're working on is actually really native. It's not, it's not looks like native. It actually calls the native APIs. Damn. So we're on top of, is we're building on top of, uh, GTK. Um, if you're interested in looking at what GTK is, but. Okay, cool. And we'll link to that too. So that's, that's react native, but for native desktop applications. Exactly. Wow. That was fantastic, man. Um, and, uh, that's really all I had to talk about, um, for right now, upcoming jam and I are considering partnering up to interview outstanding, uh, outliers, if you will, you know, for the purposes of the show in software and technology. So really, you know, people even much more incredible than jam, if we can find them, maybe. Oh, you know, like, I know, <laughs> I know a lot of software engineers that are genius. Like this guy in Australia, like, um, He's carrying a lot of the weight of this project just because he knows so much about it What's that I don't know. Um, I only know him by his GitHub <laughs> handle. I actually, I actually do know his name. What's his GitHub username? What GitHub handle? Place one. So P L A C E number one. Ooh, he's in the number one spot. He's like ludicrous. <laughs> Coming for that number one spot. All right. Um, well, he's on GitHub too, by the way. If you're interested in hitting him up about this project, that's pretty much it. Place one, Jam Rizzy. You're just Jam Rizzy on GitHub, right? I'm Jam Rizzy on Twitter. I'm Jam Rizzy on everything. You're Jam Rizzy. So um, that's it. I hope you guys learned a lot about Docker. And we might be taking spot ins down for the count. We don't know. It might take a year, but uh, might take a year to create. It might take six months if some of you guys help, or three months. That's true. That is true. Yeah. If some amazing Australian guy helps, or some some amazing person like this Australian guy. Uh, I hope that was super valuable. Leave me uh, some comments or something with what we could do to improve, what you liked about the, the show, what you didn't like about the show. Was it too long? We're experimenting with doing some longer ones, uh, especially when the guest gives me the time and is willing to do it. I think the, the long guys are great. So thanks a lot for, for watching and, and please share. We're, we're trying to get our video and audio quality up. I think you should see a noticeable improvement in the video quality on this one. And uh, we're not just recording it with my computer's webcam. <laughs> and that's it. Thanks, guys.